Welcome to the Reformed University Fellowship at UNCW Podcast. At RUF, we believe that you are never so bad that you are beyond God's grace, but never so good that you don't need God's grace. To learn more about UNCW RUF, join our weekly meetings, or get connected with our group. Follow us at RUF UNCW on social media or visit ruf.org slash UNCW. This semester, we are going through a series in the Ten Commandments, or as the Bible calls them, the Decalogue, or Ten Words. And it is God's moral law that he gives to us to show us uh, how life ought to be lived, kind of before him and in community with our neighbors. And one of the things that we've been saying every week is that, you know, we have a kind of allergy to rules and restriction. We have a particular view of freedom uh, sometimes in our society where it's like freedom just means limitlessness. But there's this really wise person named G.K. Chesterton who made this observation that whenever he encountered the commands of God, whenever God felt like it, whenever it seemed like there was a restriction, that restriction or that limitation was actually put in place to let good things run wild. So that's our hope, is that as we dig into each of these commandments, and this week we're going to be on the second commandment, that you be able to see how actually embracing this limitation will actually help goodness and beauty and truth run rampant in your life and in the lives of those around you. That's our hope. And this week, Gable Knight's going to come up and read our scripture. So we're in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2 and 4 through 6, okay? Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them, and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Thank you, David. Oh, all right. Whoops. Let me pray. Father, um, even just reading that, Lord, I imagine some of those words were strange and unfamiliar and uh, may have felt uh, heavy. Lord, would you show us yourself? We know that every word that you have caused to be written down in the Bible, you say is trustworthy and true, and we can build our lives on it and trust that our lives will not crumble. So Lord, would you uh, speak and apply these things to us, open up our ears to hear them and receive them, open up our hearts uh, for them to take root, and would you open up our hands so that we could actually do the things that you command us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, once again, I'm Sam. If I haven't met you, I know there's a lot of people here. Welcome. I just wanted you to hear from me, welcome. We want REF to be a place where people from all kind of different walks of life on campus, 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 all kind of different levels of familiarity with the things of Christianity, with the things of the Bible, to feel like they can come here, they can learn, they can grow, and they can ask questions. Um, so we want that to happen. Uh, both my wife, Shauna, and I work with RUF. A lot of um, our student leaders 
are around and they're kind of helping handing out um, bulletins and stuff. Uh, we don't want you to leave without getting someone's phone number, getting connected. Uh, I would invite you to show up tomorrow at, at, over at Einstein's if you want to just come and meet some people in a less threatening, uh, less large environment. We'd love to get to know you more and hear more of your story. Um, so, also, I really should uh, mention my wife, Shauna. You know, she's wonderful. Some of you know her. Uh, some of you have met her. Just let me describe her to you a little bit. She's about nine feet tall, platinum blonde hair, um, huge neck tattoo of a Chinese dragon. It's beautiful. And um, some of you are laughing. Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? You can say it. Why? That's not true. That's not what my wife looks like. Sean, can you raise your hand? Okay. Okay, the reason that's silly, y'all didn't know I was getting them a sermon already, did you? I am. So the reason that's silly is because there is a real person named Shauna. She really does look a certain way. She really does have a specific hair color. She really does or does not have a Chinese dragon tattoo on her neck. Does she? Well, you find out. Uh, she does not. Spoiler alert. But the reason why I bring that up is even if I told you from the bottom of my heart, with all sincerity and all kind of feeling in myself, how much I love and appreciate my wife, how much, like all the great things we've done together, like all the awesome memories we have, and I described her to you in the way I just did, you'd know that something was off. You'd know that my experience of my wife wasn't a true experience of her. That it was based on some kind of fantasy that I had built up in my own mind. What we're talking about tonight in the second commandment is that very same idea. The second commandment is based upon the idea and upon the assumption that it's really possible for us to be well-meaning, well-intentioned when we go to worship and serve God and seek to know him and to completely miss the boat. Um, this is a, a quote uh, from last week. Just, just listen to this. The most important aspect of our faith is not how hard we believe. It's not just like believing with all your heart, but it's in whom we believe. We do want to be sincere, and we do want to be single-minded in our devotion, but to have a sincerely misguided belief in the wrong thing or about the wrong person is not saving faith at all. It's possible to be full of sincere worship and worship the wrong God. The second commandment is a big deal, and in the second commandment, God basically, you know, the first commandment we talked about last week, the first commandment is don't worship any other gods other than the true God. Because only the true God loves you, bought you, has all power, goodness, and authority in himself. He's the only one who's like fit to run your life. But the second commandment is connected to it. It's don't worship the true God in any way you please. That's the essence of the second commandment. The second commandment is based upon this idea, and this is the kind of main point that I just want to dig into tonight. It's based upon this idea, this assumption, that you cannot truly love what you do not truly know. And because we cannot truly love what we do not truly know, 
And God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and kind of like beyond our comprehension. What we finite creatures need is we actually need God to tell us who he is and tell us how we are to approach him. Does that make sense? So, uh, the main point, you can't love who you don't truly know. We need God to tell us what he's like and how to come to him. Okay? And just kind of three points. We're going to talk about the rule for real worship. We're going to talk about the reasons for the rule. And then we're going to talk about how Jesus restores real worship. So first, the rule for real worship. This is uh, verse 4 through kind of 5a. The rule, don't make an idol. And it's not saying don't just, you know, make an idol of some false god. He's saying, don't make an idol and say you're worshiping me. Uh, a great example of this is, um, you know, right while Moses is kind of like up on the mountain, Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, he's up there and uh, he goes up to the mountain and the people of Israel are kind of like waiting for Moses to come down and they're getting a little antsy. And they say, hey, we should make some gods and worship them in the meantime, because this is like a religious thing that we're doing. And so the Aaron, the priest, puts all this gold that they have with them into a fire and forms it into this calf. And this is what he says. Listen to this. He takes this image of a calf out like a baby, um, like a baby bull. And he says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. He doesn't say this is some fake God. He says this is what God, the God of the Bible is. Worship him. Y'all, I, I have been through so much of my life, like kind of learning about faith and kind of growing in my faith and asking questions about faith and questions about Jesus. And I had never known that. That, that what they were actually doing was trying to make up and invent ways to worship the true God. And God looks at that and he's like, what are you doing? You guys are blowing it. So, so here's, here's what the, the rule for real, real worship is meant to do. First, it's, prevent, it's supposed to prevent us from doing just what I said, serving the true God in an untrue way. Serving the true, real God in an untrue, in a kind of false or a diminished way. Uh, from putting a filter on God, from airbrushing God. Uh, this means like either adding to God, like kind of God and other things, um, or subtracting from God. Maybe subtracting parts of who God says he is that we're, that, that maybe aren't as appealing to us. Uh, you guys have pro are probably all familiar with the movie Talladega Nights. Um, this will be the only sermon in which I quote Talladega Nights and the Puritan theologian at the same time. But so Talladega Nights, uh, there's this famous scene, you know, everyone's like at dinner and they're about to say grace and everyone's praying to a different Jesus. One's praying to a little baby Jesus, one's praying to adult Jesus, and they're all just kind of like one's tuxedo t-shirt, you know, at a Leonard Skinner concert Jesus. And everyone has their own version of Jesus that they're praying to. They're all praying to Jesus, right? What's the big deal? But then finally, the old man who's at the table is like, he was a man. He had a beard. You can't just talk to him in any way you want. And they're like, whatever, old man. Be quiet. So when we try to invent ways to talk about God, 
that God hasn't shown us already, we're doing the exact same thing that happened in that scene. And this might seem like super picky to some of y'all. Maybe you think like, God, man, God's being really like nitpicky about this stuff. Isn't it just like our intention that matters or like our heart behind it that matters? But here's the thing. A, an untrue action or a false action forms us in a certain way. It breeds a certain kind of like untrue habit or an untrue assumption into our life. And so you can have the best of intentions but still commit some pretty bad actions. And you guys know this. And not only that, I mean, all of us are picky about how we want to be approached by other people. Some of us are very picky about, like, being hugged or not being hugged. And if you're, like, very picky about that, it's unloving for someone to just walk up to you and kind of invade your physical space, is it not? So, at the very least, if we're going to offer that kind of deference to another human being, when we come to worship the God of the universe, he's just saying, hey, will you just let me tell you the way that you should come to me. Does that make sense? Can we just like give them the benefit of the doubt for the things that we already want to see? Um, the other thing is that really this, this rule reminds us something really, really important. That the life that God has for us, this life of faith, isn't accessed through our senses. That the most important things in life, the eternal, lasting, really valuable things in life, aren't things that we can see. They're not things that we can touch. The eternal, lasting things of this world are the things the Bible says are spirit. And God is a spirit, and he doesn't have a body like men. The Bible says that. And so um, this commandment, God is kind of teaching us to devalue all the stuff that we normally would value. <laughs> Because we, normal, we normally value what things look like or what things, how things make us feel, you know, or um, our physical experience of something. And God is saying, I'm not saying that's bad. I created your five senses, but they are not trustworthy guides on how to relate to me. Does that make sense? Um, there's this uh, thing that happened basically when um, the, the people of Israel came back through the desert. They are preparing to go into the promised land. This is in the book of Deuteronomy, which the word just means second law. It's like the sequel to the book of Exodus where the, you know, they, they read the law a second time. And Moses is reminding the people of what happened. And this is how he describes the event. This is in Deuteronomy 4. He says, hey, remember when you were at the mountain? You didn't see a form of any created thing when God revealed himself to you. But what did you hear? You heard his voice speaking. You didn't see any images. You just saw, a, you just heard a voice. And so this is what he says. Deuteronomy 4. So therefore, watch out, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female human, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any bird that flies in the air. And he says, beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. So you're seeing the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, and you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Those are all things that everyone else around you bows down to and serves. But you're not like everyone else, he's saying. 
because you don't just have these created things that have been revealed to you. God has spoken to you. Why would you turn away from these personal, direct words to something that's created? Do you see? So he's saying the, the weight, what God is trying to teach us is like the, the trustworthy weight of revelation of who he is is found in his word. Or as Romans 10, Romans 10 says it, faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. So faith comes by hearing. All right, so just hearing those two things, hearing those kind of um, guardrails, hearing God say, listen, you don't need your own kind of custom version, filtered airbrush version of me to save you. You need the real me to save you. You, you don't need like, trucker Jesus or hipster Jesus or like, you know, um, firefighter Jesus or something like that, or whatever kind of paintings of Jesus that you see depicted sometimes in like church hallways and stuff like that. That's not the Jesus that's actually going to save you. You need the real historical Jesus who really lived and died. That's the one that's worthy of your love and affection. That's the one who you're supposed to worship and serve. Just hearing those things brings up a couple questions for me, and I hope it brings up questions for you. Here's what I just want us to ask and maybe reflect on, and if you want to have conversations about this with me later, I really hope this draws some stuff up, because when I first heard the second commandment, I was like, I have a lot of questions about a lot of different things that I have grown up with. So here's my question for you. What, in terms of like your religious preferences, or religious traditions, or just things that you kind of grew up with or have seen, have a little bit of a weird rub with what you heard me say. Or what what are things that you have kind of grown up with? Are there practices or the traditions or kind of preferences that you have about how you would like to approach God that feel like, you know, I wonder if that's really something that God wants me to do. Or if that's just something I want to do. Or if that's just something like people have done and there's like a, a tradition that's been passed down to me, but I don't even know if that's something that comes from the Bible or just something people have invented. Do you get what I'm saying? I think throughout human history, different times Christians have kind of fallen on one side of being like very, almost like too careful about this, about you know worshiping God in a particular way to where there's like no freedom whatsoever. And then I also think in other settings and other seasons, people have been like very, kind of like anything goes, just, you know, worship how you, however you feel like it. Make a holy noise to the Lord, you know? And I don't know quite maybe where we are on that pendulum swing right now, but there's somewhere that you are in your own heart. And what I just wanna say is, is there a, a habit or a practice or something that you've grown up with or even something you've just assumed about God that you're like, I wonder if that's really true. Or I wonder if that just has formed me in a certain way to assume something that it isn't really true. If you have questions, if that's too vague, we can kind of talk about it more. Um, okay, that's the rule. Don't worship God, the true God, in a way that he hasn't said is true. Okay, the, here's the reasons for the rule. Just three reasons, briefly. First, God is a lover. 
I mean, this is like foundational to everything, right? Because the very first thing we talked about the very first week is, is God set his love on his people and he said, I'm your God. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I have rescued you. Now, here are these commands for you to walk in the ways of the God who loves you and has rescued you, to show you the life that is truly life. Um, but foundationally, who God is, is he is a rescuing, loving God. This means that when he gives this command, he's not just some disinterested, kind of nitpicky critic. Like he's personally invested in this. I just want to imagine this. You know, imagine, um, you know, in my house, in Shauna and I's house, we have a wedding that was taken uh, of my wife, Shauna, on the night of our rehearsal dinner. It was at a barbecue place in Asheville called Twelve Bones, and it was amazing. And I, I'm not afraid to say she is lovely in the photo. And can you just imagine for a second if I came home and every time I came home, you know, my wife's and my, my kids are in the, uh, the dining room. I walk past them. I don't make eye contact with them. And I just walk up to the picture. And I'm like, it's so great to see you. I love you so much. And but before I leave, you know, I, I take the picture down. And I kind of hug the picture. I'm like, I hope you have a great day. I love you. You love me? Okay, great. But she's right there. How do you think she would feel? Kind of bugged, kind of annoyed. What, and, and I might say, you know, you know I, I may just say, you know, hey, this is how I express my love to you. Uh, it, you know, this is just the way that it feels comfortable for me to do this. Is she going to accept that excuse? No, probably not. I mean, if it was you, would you accept that excuse? It doesn't feel like love, even though I'm saying I'm like trying to express love. It feels like. I kind of hate her, you know, or I'm not really willing to engage with all of her as she is right now, like the three-dimensional, real, living, and breathing her. And so imagine the indignation or the frustration that you would feel in a situation like that. Now, imagine, just, just multiply that by like an infinite degree of love and care for this person. And you get a sense of what God means when he says, I am a jealous God. He's jealous, not in a kind of sinful way, not in a competitive way of like he's threatened by it, not in an insecure way, but he's jealous in the sense of like, I love you and what you're doing is wrong. That's what he means when he says, I am a jealous God. So that's the first reason God is a lover and lovers get jealous for the people they love. So, this is, uh, so he's a, a lover, but how does he respond when he kind of gets this love spurned? Well, the, the Bible says also that God isn't just a lover, God is also a judge. That God, like, looks at certain things and he weighs in and he says, that is right. That is not right. And this way of approaching God is not a small thing to him. He says, this is a big deal. I'm um, standing against that. And so I just, I mean, this is so countercultural. It is so hard for us to hear. It is hard for me to try to explain to you. Because judgment seems kind of opposed to love. 
But if certain things are bad for you and bad for other people, it is not unloving to tell you you have to stop this. It is not unloving for you to take the keys from a drunk person when they're about to get in the car and drive on the road. Be like, you, what you are doing is going to hurt someone and it's going to hurt you. Do not do this, right? You're rendering a judgment. Oh, don't be so judgy. You have to be judgy. It, there's a time and a place to judge. And God is saying, this is the way it is. Okay? But I just want you to see something here. God says, I'm going to judge, right? I'm going to bring consequences on these actions. And it says, you know, he's going to be judging to the, um, the third and fourth generation. That if, like, one group of people does this, the bad consequences of it are going to fall down, like, through their family tree and, like, out into the community. That what you do doesn't just stay with you. It has these consequences outside of you and your relationships, especially those closest to you. Interesting story. Throughout Israel's history, if you look in the book of First Kings and if you look in the rest of the books, any time that people kind of turned away, if there was a bad king that turned away from worshiping God, what would happen is about three or four generations, they would be kind of left to the consequences of their own actions. And then after three or four generations, something would change. Some outside force would intervene or some new king would come up. What's happening? God's words are coming true because they always come true. But notice, like the third and fourth generation thing, See how it's balanced out, would you? Because God isn't just a judge. God is a, a blesser. And this is the final thing that you really need to see. That um, Because, I mean, you can't just only talk about the judgment side of his character. You have to talk about the mercy side of his character. And it seems to me, I'm not an accounting major, right? So some of you are accounting. Who's an accounting major in this room? Okay, thank you. Benderson, is a thousand more than four? Okay, if there were like a thousand full seats in this auditorium and four empty seats and you were standing up at the front and you looked at the auditorium, would you be like, that's a full auditorium or like, that's an empty auditorium, friends? Full, right? And so I just want you to see how lopsided God's depiction of who he is is. Do you see this? He's saying, I'm gonna bring negative consequences to three and four generations, to people that have turned away from me and are hating me, and to those who call out to me and seek to follow my commandments. I'm gonna bring mercy, love, and goodness, and blessing to a thousand generations. Y'all, that is so lopsided. It, like grace triumphs over judgment like a, a, so much. It is so overwhelming when God describes who he is, how much he loves to bless people. Uh, there's this one part of the Bible in the book of Isaiah where God talks about like going to bring bad consequences on his people for their disobedience and for running away from him. And he says, this is what it's gonna, I'm gonna bring disaster. Disaster is gonna come to you. And then he says, this is my strange deed. This is my alien work. It is strange for me to not bless you. It is weird. It feels weird for me not to bring goodness and joy and fruitfulness and fulfillment to you. But this is what I have to do because even when he brings judgment, he brings it out of love, out of truth, out of his goodness. 
out of his, the, the good things in his character. So that at the end of human history, when we see it all, we will be like, yes, every judgment you made was right. And so, y'all, I'm harping on this not only because there's like a big chunk of the Bible that's devoted to this in this particular passage. But God really, I think for us, we're like, man, this is, it's so weird that this is a commandment. It seems like such a minor thing. And God's like, this is in the top ten. I want you to pay attention to this. There are consequences attached to this, not just for you, but for all those who you love and all those you come in contact with. There are consequences for the whole world because of this stuff. So finally, how does Jesus restore worship? Well, briefly, Jesus restores it because he embodies this command perfectly. Like Jesus came to earth as the visible image of the invisible God. Did you know that God makes images? Like God made an image of himself. And not only that, the Bible tells us that it's okay and actually good and life-saving for us to worship that image. Who is that image? The Bible says Jesus is the image of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. That's what Hebrews says. So that when we come to Jesus, we actually can worship God rightly. But here's the funny thing, and we were talking about this in my Bible study the other day. When Jesus was walking on the earth, all of his image of Godness, none of that you would have seen, none of that you would have been able to know just by seeing him walk down the street. He would just look like an ordinary guy. The Bible says there was, he had no form or majesty to attract us to him. But he was just like an ordinary looking guy. Everything important about him could not be seen with our eyes. And so even that trains us to distrust our senses and to think, what did he say? What did he do? How did he fulfill God's word? Do you see? It's the same thing as the second command. To lean into to hearing, not living by sight. But then finally, Jesus doesn't just embody this command. He teaches us to embody it too. All of us struggle with disordered worship. All of us worship idols in one way or another. And all of us are sitting under a penalty of judgment. And Jesus says, I will obey that for them. I will forgive them. And I will stick with them and I will teach them how to worship God rightly. Jesus wants to teach us how to worship God. His, one of the, he had this encounter with a Samaritan woman in the book of John. And he's talking to her, and she says, how are we supposed to worship? I mean, some people say we worship in this place. Other people say we worship in the temple. And Jesus doesn't say, worship any way you want. It doesn't really matter. It just matters what you feel in your heart. He says, there is a right place to worship. There is a right way to worship. God wants people to worship him in spirit and truth. And then he says to her, I and the Messiah. I am God's servant. I am the king that God is sending to make everything right. And she runs, she runs to all of her friends and she says, come meet this person who told me everything I've ever done. He's so incredible. Could this really be the king that God has sent? So anyways, I just want to encourage you, if there was something tonight that convicted you, that confused you, 
lean into that. Because as we get into the rest of these commandments, there's going to be things that kind of rub us a certain way. And, and we need to lean into that. That's how you grow. That's how you learn. Uh, and I would encourage you to reach out to me. Uh, so let's pray. And then we'll get the worship team back up here. Father, uh, thank you for giving us your word. Uh, for showing us how to relate to you, to relate to others. Lord, help us to receive it. Uh, help us to walk in it.